So uh, welcome to Live, Work, Play. Today I'm joined by Eleanor Nicolette from the town of Canmore. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Eleanor. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Paul. Yeah, well, it's so great to be able to talk to someone from Canmore as we get into the tourist season. And uh, you had mentioned uh, a while back that uh, you have uh, kind of a, a, a big moment today uh, in Canmore. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so today is the start of our pedestrian zone downtown, which means we close the road for vehicular traffic, but we open it up for cyclists, for skateboarders, for pedestrians to kind of take over our downtown in a different way. Yeah, and that's a big step in obviously trying to get more people uh, on foot to enjoy Canmore. And of course, you know, one of the busiest places uh, any time of the year in Alberta, but uh, especially as we get into the summer travel season, uh, seeing a whole lot about that. Um, what was the background, Eleanor, and, and how you guys came to the decision to put that in place? Great question. Yeah. So we started this as part of a COVID response. As I mentioned to you before, we had uh, visitors that were coming into the valley when when restrictions were you couldn't be inside, you could be outside enjoying the outdoors. Uh, but our sidewalks were two and a half meters wide. And so we realized we needed to create a safe zone for our residents and for our visitors and for our businesses. A lot of our businesses downtown are small. So where do people line up? How do you create a safe space to do so when you have kind of narrow sidewalks? Because we didn't start out as a tourism town. We started out as a, a coal mining town. Uh, and so it was a different environment that we needed to create. We kind of pushed it through with 47% support. We checked in with businesses after season. How did it go? What was the reaction? And we, that needle moved to 78% support. Can we do it again? Can we extend it longer? So that was great to see. We got a lot of positive feedback from residents and from visitors. And it just created this vibrant downtown um, core that people could come and enjoy. And better than that, some of our businesses actually told us that 2019 was their best year ever. And for some of them, 2020 was their best year ever. And we weren't expecting that. We were just thinking about how do we um, encourage them to survive? How do we build resiliency? How do we build capacity? Uh, and to hear that some, for some of them, that was their best year in business yet was just an amazing story to hear back in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of shutdowns and restrictions and all that craziness. So we've continued well, it I, on. Yeah, and I think uh, so many people were looking at ways that they could continue their lives during that period without having to be shut up in their homes and opening the outdoors, even on a town street. Uh, was a big opportunity just for people to have some kind of uh, social activity and connection through that. And I think for a lot of people that have visited Canmore in the last few years, in particular during the pandemic, you probably discovered new parts of Canmore that you didn't even realize were there. And, and so, you know, in many ways, COVID did provide these new opportunities and in some places, we're able to recognize those and at the same time, really look out for people and make sure that they were in a safe place. Absolutely. And it is the story that we often hear in Camor, right? People start out going to Banff 
and they discover Camor by chance and they're like, we like it better. It has a, a bit of a natural feel. The locals live there. Community is there. It's not as um, programmed as maybe mm -hmm. Banff. And Banff is lovely. I have nothing against <laughs> our neighbors down the street. Uh, but this is a little bit more hometown feel. And that's why I love for, Camor. For sure. And I think that uh, you sort of alluded to Canmore's origins as a coal mining community. In fact, uh, you know, until probably I'm going to say, I don't know exactly the dates, but coal mining in Alberta really slowed down in the 1950s and 60s. And then the next big thing, I guess, for Canmore would have been the Winter Olympics and the hosting of Nordic events at the Nordic Center. Uh, you know, such a great legacy uh, for people in this region to be able to have access to that and also you know, the opening of Kananaskis country and all those things. So, so Canmore just over time has uh, really benefited from those things, but I think it's also benefited from uh, what you see in Banff and people that really just want a different experience than what they see there. And let's face it, the, the level of activity, the pressure on all the facilities, those things, uh, you know, when people can avoid them, they try, they try to. And, and Canmore just has always provided a great opportunity to, try something different in that way. Yeah, I call Camor an accidental tourism town because if you mm -hmm. you might not know this, but the Nordic Center was not slated to be in Camor. It was slated no, to be in the that. Bragg Creek area. Uh, when the original application for the Olympic Games went in, the Nordic Center was not Camor. And then as they got the approval for the Olympic Games and they started really scoping the land, the decision was made to move it to Camor, just better snow, better elevation for those Nordic uh, Games and sports. And that's how that kind of rolled into our community. And that's really changed the trajectory uh, of Camor over the years. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know just the uh, ability to do things as well. There just seems to be uh, a lot more uh, accessibility for different uh, activities like mountain biking and Nordic skiing. Uh, but also, I mean, you get into the hiking, some of the improvements that have been put in over the years. Uh, and then, of course, everybody wants a place uh, après ski or après uh, hike that uh, they want to spend time in and uh, you know some great uh, restaurants and, and, and dining in, uh, in Canmore as well. It really is a, a culinary destination, a shopping destination, an outdoor activity, a wedding destination. It has become that for uh, our province, our neighbors and even internationally it's gaining and growing in its uh, attention. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's such a great place. But uh, my next big series of questions, I guess, Eleanor, are going to be a little bit more about you. And I always like to ask anyone, so how did you get into economic development? I think like many economic developers, I rolled into this field. Uh, we had moved to northern Alberta, uh, to uh, the county of Northern Lights in 2010 for my husband's work. Uh, and I started working for the municipality myself shortly thereafter in a new position in community services who reported to the, the then relatively new manager of economic development. Four months in, uh, she pursued other adventures. And I looked at the job. I'd been a manager from a young age in my career. 
had a minor in business. My my degree was in human resources, actually. And I thought economic development seems like something I could do. Uh, so I applied for the position and I got it. Uh, and that was my entrance into economic development. Took my University of Waterloo uh, courses in economic development. And when I saw the board, you know, one of the first classes that they do is, what do you do in economic development? And the list just kept going and going and going. I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I roll into? Um, but it was also exciting because n- no day is the same. And it, it, it's an adventure of walking with people through their entrepreneurial journey. And it's a real privilege to be able to do that. I've always been driven by seeing people uh, come into the fullness of who they are and reaching their capacity and being able to apply that my business knowledge with my personal passion is a great career to be in. It. Well, for sure. And, and it's so true that uh, every community has I like to say their own, its own personality. So when you look at wherever you've been in the past, um, definitely uh, that uh, it becomes a, a way to shape that uh, uniqueness of every community that you're in. And, and you're right, the uh, chance to have uh, a sort of a stake in and helping people move through and, and do really exciting things in itself uh, is very fun and exciting to be part of that activity and that action that's taking place in different places. So uh, that I, for me, that really is what drew me to it as well. It, uh, you, you sort of take what you know, but then you try to understand the community that you're in and try to put things in place that really fit that community uh, the best that you can. Uh, at times, it can be challenging in the sense of uh, the depending on what level of uh, change your community wants to deal with. But that is part of the sort of the deciphering process and figuring out what fits the best. Um, I know another thing that you're really uh, strongly involved in, Eleanor, is, is mentoring. And I wanted to know a little bit more about how you how you kind of got into that and and what that means to you uh, as a as a real strong champion of mentoring in the economic development community. You know, that has so many levels to it. But I think most importantly, I've had the privilege in my career and in my life to be surrounded by some amazing people that have just really poured into who I am today. Uh, And that ability to recognize that uh, I am not a spring chicken anymore. I'm not 16 anymore. And now I have some wisdom behind me and I have the ability to pour into others. And so when I ran for the EDA board uh, and Pat was there as well at the time um, and with strong passion to see a mentorship program developed in EDA. Uh, Pat really uh, spearheaded that and now um, she has left the board and I get to, to, to move that forward. But it also in those in my own career, having people like Natalie Gibson or, or Chris King uh, just pour into us really as new economic developers was great. And um, there's a whole new generation of economic developers coming in. And how do we make sure that they have the capacity and skill sets to grow and develop? Uh, I've heard somebody said, you know, our ceiling is the next generation's platform. So no matter where we, we go in our career, that's maybe our ceiling in our career, but we can set the next generation up for higher and better things. And that to me is, I think, 
um, the essence of mentorship is that skill set and, and don't fall into the same pitfalls. And in economic development, we do that with our, the entrepreneurs. We share yeah. with them, you know, best practices so that they don't have to make the mistakes others have made and become sec- successful in their paths. And I think that's in, in economic development what we are doing now as well. Yes, and I, I would say that everyone's had someone in their life that has really invested in them in order to move forward and learn from. And, um, you know, some of the things that I've been involved in in the past, in a lot of cases, it's been being involved in youth sports as a, as a coach or uh, in the workplace, working with staff and sort of sharing some of those, you call them tricks of the trade or mm-hmm. uh, things to, in some cases, just avoid this type uh, stories. But uh, it's it's so true that, uh, you know, those people do lift you. And I, I really like how you put that, that uh, the next level is where the next generation starts on top of where we, we will finish. And uh, that's such a great way to put it. Um, what would you say to someone who is looking to become a mentor and, and, and some of the things that they um, might want to consider? Um, some of the some of the pluses, some of the, some of the minuses, I guess, or or uh, you know, what would be some advice that you can give in in becoming a mentor in in economic development? Yeah, a great question. <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing for me is to realize you don't have to know it all, but we have a network. And we, we tell people to build their network and we have a network that we can tap into and say, I might not know this, but maybe Paul knows this or maybe Leanne knows this or or maybe Sean knows this. And so maybe my role as a mentor is just to tap you into that network uh, so that you can build on their learnings and experiences. Because as you said before, every community have a, has a different nuance to economic development. For some, it's really the development of an industrial park and foreign direct investments. For others, it's working and building local entrepreneurship. For others, it's building housing and daycare because their businesses don't have people to work there. And everybody has a different level of experience. And can you tie them into those things? So, no, you don't have to know it all. You just have to be available and be willing to tap them in to your network that you've built over your career so that they can be successful in what what they're taking on. And that's so true, Eleanor. I mean, in many cases, an economic developer might be the only person doing that role in their community. And so if you are sort of debating in your mind about what things you should do or what you should focus on or how you should go about getting things done, uh, there's nothing better than uh, picking up the phone and talking to someone within the, the industry to to share that information. And luckily, we're in an industry where we're full of generous people who have great ideas and experience and are always willing to share. Like, I've never picked up a phone and talked to a fellow economic developer and had them say, no, gee, sorry, Paul, I can't tell you anything about that. Uh, unless it's confidential, of course. <laughs> of course, <laughs> those are the, generally, those are the, yes. Those are the exceptions, but uh, at, at the same time, like very generous people and very great ideas and many times will save you time and energy uh, going down a path that perhaps uh, someone that you know has already gone down. Um, of course, you know, time changes and, and the same type of idea 
might have uh, more fertile soil in the future than it does uh, in the past or has in the past. So sometimes I think uh, those who have the war stories to share uh, may, you know, maybe turn turn someone off trying something. But I think it's really important to uh, to try and get people to work through their problems as well and uh, come up with the solutions based on just using each other as a sounding board. I think for my for myself, I think that's been so important in, in my career. But, uh, you know, really want to underscore how important that is with uh, with dealing with, you know, current and future economic development professionals as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, most importantly, you have to know your community that you're in. I always, when you're coming into a community as a new economic developer and you don't kind of know the lay of the land, you get the lay of the land by talking to your businesses. So doing that business visitation by pounding the pavement, understanding the issues, and that will also help you talk to somebody else uh, and say, hey, this is a challenge that I'm having in the commu- my community. I know that you've dealt with that there. How did you go about changing that? And with that knowledge, you can support each other and, and raise each other up. For sure. And, you know, I think in many ways, the economic developers that I know uh, that have been really effective are very, very social creatures. Um, they're not afraid to uh, make introductions. They're not afraid to set up meetings and, and sort of expand the network for the people in the community. So. Sometimes that can be very challenging, though, in the context of a municipal government setting uh, where or an office setting where there are no other economic developers. It's sort of like, well, why is Eleanor or Paul, why are they leaving the office so often to do things? Uh, Why aren't they sitting at their desk when everyone else is sitting at their desk? And that can be uh, a bit of a challenge to sort of educate people around you about what you what you're really doing and and what it takes to be effective at what you do absolutely my comment back uh in the start of my career was always like if i'm sitting behind my desk too much i'm actually not doing my job and so if you want me to do my job and deliver on my mandate i need to be out there talking to businesses and engaging uh i cannot do that sitting behind my desk specifically in alberta where people like that personal one-on-one interaction. They sure do. Uh, kind of a similar quote that I used to use, and maybe maybe it was jarring for some, it was uh, a quote from Mario Andretti. And it goes, uh, if things seem like they're under control, you're just not going fast enough. I like it. Yes, good one. <laughs> and so really what we're, what I'm trying to say with that quote is that you know, when you're moving really fast in economic development and some of your colleagues in different parts of an organization don't move at that same pace, it can be jarring to them to have to experience that level of activity around them in some cases. But there's really kind of this, uh, uh, well, in Alberta, we have the get or done uh, comment or, or expression that we use very often to say, uh, you know, we're going to get things done. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, we run into, uh, you know, different personalities in a municipal organization, uh, in particular, dealing a lot with planners and engineers and accountants that, uh, you know, are, are used to kind of, kind of controlling the process a little bit. And in some cases, we have to really be the, uh, the bearers of the magic wand or the invisible hand of, uh, of getting things done in business. 
and do things that make good common sense in our minds, but sometimes uh, make other people around us a little bit nervous. For sure. I, I think my best quote for an economic developer, uh, and I can't even uh, accredit this to anybody. I read it in a report that was written for the County of Northern Lights on should they even do economic development, but I don't know where they got this quote from. So I'm going to read it to you. And it says an economic sure. developer has been described as a person that must be a contortionist. The EDO must keep their back to the wall, their ear to the ground, their shoulder to the wheel, their nose to the grindstone, keep a level head, both feet on the ground, and at the same time have their head in the clouds and look for the silver lining. And it really speaks to the diversity that uh, an economic developer needs to have in their personality and their ability, specifically, as you mentioned, dealing with departments that might be a little bit more rigid, uh, you know, that are bound by land use bylaws and legal frameworks. And they're not used to being pushed that to say, but why? Why do we have that in place? And is it still relevant today when we wrote this, you know, X amount of years ago? And have things changed? So I think about agriculture, for example. Now we have um, new growing mechanisms that are not, to me, considered heavy industrial. But agriculture often is deemed heavy industrial because the image is big tractors, big farm equipment, big land. But you could have a mushroom growing operation or a lettuce growing operation in an office building and have zero impact other than your shipping, right? A, a, a van comes and picks it up and moves it out. So that changes the definition needed in a land use bylaw to allow for certain hydroponic grow opportunities to take place in other areas than just heavy industrial. So true, I can remember my first, I will call it an epiphany moment, when I was talking to an engineer and I was looking at a, an industrial park map and, it, and on the left side was it was zoned I, light industrial on the right side was zoned heavy industrial. And then I said, what would happen if you took the heavy industrial parcel and you put it on the other side and put the light industrial on the opposite side and then he looked at me and he said, it's a line on a piece of paper. We can change that. And, and, it, and it was sort of like uh, sometimes you get convinced that nothing can be done because a policy has to be changed. But in reality, uh, the things that we do often do require policy change in order to address the nuance in industry and what's new and being developed Another one I think that really stands out for me and I think a lot of uh, uh, places have had to deal with is when we first started to see microbreweries in, in Alberta and how the definition in the land use bylaw about a brewery was it's a massive industrial complex like this, the kind that you'd see from Molson, yeah. Labatt and so on and it will take up several acres and it will be an absolute eyesore, not the tap room or tasting room, plus, you know, small, you know, microbrewery equipment that in some cases uh, 
takes up a small portion of a room, depending on what the scale of the operation is. So it's interesting, yeah, how we together with uh, with planners and development officers uh, work through those things. But oftentimes it's the entrepreneur that shows up on our doorstep first and says, this is what I want to do. And then uh, and then we sort of shuffle them off to uh, planning and development services in some cases uh, where they'll hear a different version of that story. And I think a lot of places have adopted uh, kind of like a joint meeting, sort of a, a pre-application meeting approach where you get you know five or six people in a room from different disciplines within the municipality. They can work through all kinds of different scenarios with an application and try and fast track that. That's something I definitely saw uh, Calgary Economic Development in the city of Calgary trying to do in a lot of ways. And a lot of uh, small municipalities actually have a huge advantage because uh, in some cases, you know, it's just one other person or two other people that are involved in the process. So the, the layers of bureaucracy are limited and can get things done. And it's always difficult to anticipate something that you've never even thought of. Uh, walking in the door and then how you're going to react to that. But yep. there's a lot of great municipalities out there that who really see it as their badge of honor to say that, no, our doors are open and we want to help you make this happen uh, versus, sorry, uh, it says no, so we have to say no. Uh, I think there's a lot more flexibility now because people have witnessed what happens when you say no. And maybe in the past of Alberta's economy, like we've had that luxury to say no, because we felt like the economy was cruising along at a you know high enough uh, pace that we weren't going to miss out on anything. And I think that uh, really did change over the last few years. For me, it's been uh, different, right? We're living and working in economic development in Northern Alberta, where there was a lot of opportunity and ability. Uh, when I l- moved to camera, I quickly learned some of the restrictions. So we're mm-hmm. we're surrounded by mountains, wildlife corridors where you can't do anything. Uh, we have limited land mass, limited growth opportunity. And then you really have to be really critical saying, okay, does this actually fit within our community? Mm-hmm. Or might a neighbor be better suited? I remember mm-hmm. getting a call from a um, senior's uh, group that wanted to build a seniors complex and they were looking for 16 consecutive acres. Oh, and wow. I said, do you know the land price in Camor presently? And they're like, no. I said, well, here is the land price for that just sold for a one residential. So a land parcel, not even a, an acre uh, with, without a house on it. And they were a bit shocked. I said, outside of the fact that 16 consecutive acres is not something that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as an economic developer, knowing my region, I said, but here, let me tie you into these people. And I know that they have land and ability and willingness to, to have this conversation with you. And I think that's as a region, how we become stronger when we partner. What's been really successful in Canberra is micro manufacturing because of our, our big tourism uh, flow through people are experiencing products here, then bringing it back to their communities. Uh, so Rocky Mountain Soap, for example, is within three provinces, 16, 17 locations and growing quite rapidly, all manufactured here in Canmore. Uh, Grizzly Paw, one of the first micro uh, brewers uh, in the province mm-hmm. at the time, 
Um, they manufacture everything in camera. They warehouse in Calgary because warehousing makes no sense here. Because, right? mm -hmm. again, cost of land. And so you, you look at those kind of partnerships and how do we support each other in the region and, and lift each other up in, in those places. So true. And I think, uh, you know, Canmore does provide a good model for those types of opportunities. But there are some great, obviously great examples of businesses that have done well based out of Canmore. And, uh, you know, great entrepreneurial mindset. Absolutely. It's been fascinating to see. So just before the pandemic, uh, Innovate Camor was created, kind of a tech incubation uh, unit by a bunch of really, really multi-PhD smart people. And it's been incredible just to watch some of the things that are happening there. One of their startup companies sold for multi-million dollars. Uh, and it's even during the pandemic, because they're in that tech industry, fascinating to see what comes out of that. Some of that, of course, is still in the proprietary stages, so you can't talk about it. But when you see when it actually goes live, it's exciting. They work with what they call unicorns. Uh, they, they they coach a lot of like tech startups, but not everybody mm -hmm. is a good fit for the, their programs. And so then they tie them into other programs that might fit better for, for that realm. But it's that partnership, it's that innovation, it's the creativity of people coming to the table. Uh, and it's been just amazing to watch. Uh, and I think Alberta in general, Paul, is just beaming and growing with entrepreneurial mindsets in northern Alberta mm -hmm. because of lack of access to stores. Often you saw farmers and people in industry create some of their own solutions because they had no option and then were able to uh, sell that to a larger market because it was a great innovation to a problem that they have, but it, it got birthed out of desperation. We can't drive mm -hmm. two and a half hours to the city for this piece. How do we create something different uh, that fits the need? Yeah, I mean, there's so many great examples. I would say, you know, at least in the last five, if not longer years, we've seen such a spike in the emphasis on innovation in Alberta. And, uh, you know, that largely driven by, again, a negative uh, with the uh, downturn in, in the uh, early teens in Alberta, the oil and gas industry. Uh, a lot of people now finally kind of almost needing that wake up call to diversify. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that for sure. There's huge things in Alberta to do with uh, alternative energy. Uh, we've seen the, you know, the biggest growth in Alberta uh, for alternative energy in, in, in any comparable district in, in North America. So it's so great to see that. And there's kind of this time around, I get the feeling that there's more of a willingness. Uh, there's more of an urgency to adopt that mindset. Uh, and there's more of, a, I think in the past, there'd almost be people hanging back thinking, oh, no, we'll just wait because, you know, these things come in cycles and the next cycle will come around and we'll just put our feet up for a few years. We'll have to make some drastic cuts here and there just so we can keep things afloat here in terms of our, our, our budget and uh, viability of our company. But in the end, uh, we'll you know, get to a point where it'll come back and we'll we'll say, yes, please, we'll have another boom. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we definitely are seeing 
more of that than we were a few years ago. But the startup communities in Alberta, whether it's Edmonton or or Canmore or Calgary, uh, just a very different mindset. And then you've got things like Plug and Play, Thrive, and uh, various other incubators that are out there. Um, and then this whole sort of business of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that um, and quantum computing. Uh, these are these are massive things that you know I can't really talk to uh, in any detail, but they're out there, and there's a lot of smart people who've shifted away from what would be traditional training in colleges and universities into these areas. And uh, again, that's another example of uh, you know our are the new generation sort of standing on our shoulders and then uh, taking advantage and moving things uh, in a new direction that has uh, so much potential. Absolutely. I think the level of innovation is mind boggling. And I can only think about, you know, generations before us, uh, the conversation, mm-hmm. even with younger staff members of I was, you know, this old when the Internet came in. <laughs> and I remember having to pick an internship. So I had the ability to uh, do an internship with IBM at the time, which was still doing the the dot dash bracket. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bolding. The DOS operating system. Yeah. Or work for NCR corporations. Uh, and they were they brought in Microsoft and it's. Uh, with this new, you know, technology coming in and I had the ability to work in their, you know, an HR department there and their their uh, training center where people could do their training on Word and Excel. And I, I'm glad I chose that one because uh, that oh, has been a sure. great benefit throughout my career. But it's those decisions are happening so rapidly, new software, new innovation it's incredible to watch and also dizzying for our entrepreneurs and our business community because in this labor market crunch that we find ourselves in, in our province and, and globally, it's not a, not a, a Camor problem. It's not an Alberta problem. It's, it's globally. The labor forces aren't there. We don't have 12 sibling households, you know, one, you know, mom at home and dad working that doesn't exist or very rarely. So, and, and so you have people with, you know, 0.5 children. I don't know how that works, by the way, but um, <laughs> and that so there's a limiting supply and entrepreneurs and businesses are having to look at, OK, where can I innovate? Where can technology be a solution for me? And, and wh- what are the pieces that I cannot find technology to cover? And I hear the complaint. Right? Remember when Walmart came in and they had those automated mm-hmm. checkouts and people were like losing their mind. How dare you? And I'm like, well, if they want to be open, they have to do that because you're still going to buy there. But you're unwilling to stand in a lineup, 10, 15 people deep to talk to a person. People will always choose that convenience. And now you have that you can order online and just pick it up. Right. Still people that fill those baskets, by the way. But that, I think, is is the rate at which even economic developers need to grow and change their knowledge and skill set to help entrepreneurs. Like, where could you find out about how you could innovate and what you might be able to do differently? How do we tap you into those resources so that you can be successful in the longer term? Well, and it's it's interesting because if you think about, you know, our profession and you think about. Uh, are we taking enough time to step back and look through that lens? The answer is probably no, 
because we're busy doing what we've done and how, and we know sort of what we're doing, but it's so important to take the time to think about how can we as a profession apply that technology in new ways. So I think that's a real good uh, kind of call to action uh, for people in economic development anywhere to think about those things. And I'm sure that there are uh, organizations that kind of have the resources to look through that lens. But uh, it's a very interesting proposition to think about it. Sometimes I'll catch myself talking to uh, younger people and I'll feel like uh, it would have been the equivalent to somebody telling me that their first car was a Model T, right? Uh, (laughs) Usually if I mention the word fax machine, uh, I get kind of this glazed over look and then I go, oh yeah, okay. (laughs) I've really dated myself, right? So funny story here. I'm uh, talking to my CAO and I'm describing a consultant that we'd hired uh, for retail gap analysis and light industrial review. And I and he used to live here in Camor as part of that team. And I'm describing him and she says, oh, is he middle aged? I said, no, I don't think so. I think he's my age. She starts laughing <laughs> and she says, Eleanor, you're the epitome of middle age. Do you have a daughter getting married? And uh, well, I said I don't. Um, I don't recognize myself as middle-aged. I still don't, by the way. I, I still balk <laughs> against that. But I recognize, you know, I had a daughter get married. My my baby is 20. Uh, that I'm also not a not uh, you know in the 20s anymore. And that some of my knowledge is is getting more limited and that I have to tap into younger generations around the new technology. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about the Economic Developers Alberta Conference. There's always a diversity of speakers and it always blows my mind when you start looking at technology. One year we, or last year, we had somebody that did the whole virtual reality and you could join the conference through a virtual reality VR setting and it is it blows my mind this is where my son operates he loves that stuff uh for me it was a little overwhelming but how incredible that it's it's building that capacity and the ability for people to join and participate differently and become more accessible that way and now you're seeing that apply to stores where you can go on the canadian tire app and you can say, I need this, and it will direct you to where in the store that item is, mm-hmm. uh, right? That's yeah, amazing. versus the uh, primitive, uh, you know, internet that we were introduced to, uh, you know, eons ago now. Uh, but, it, you know, it's also a great uh, chance to underscore, you know, just how cool having a mentee would be for economic developers who are a little bit, uh, well, longer in the tooth. Uh, <laughs> we might learn a great deal if we had some, uh, you know, younger economic developers that can kind of, you know, wake us up in some ways about how technology is being used and tapping us into some of the other uh, things that are happening out there. Uh, again, like EDA, a fa- fantastic resource uh, for that, going to conferences, talking to people. Uh, that's how we we learn for sure. But uh, I just know that uh, anytime I've had a chance to connect with uh, younger professionals, it really gives you a new burst of energy in a lot of ways to get things done and to kind of look outside of the frame that we normally see 
Uh, and and that's that's a great and exciting uh, thing to consider. That's the benefit of mentorship too. You hear, For sure. you 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 get to interact with often younger generation uh, on economic developers and also learn from them. It's never a one way street. There's never just you downloading and not receiving. You learn from each other in that journey, and I think that's a benefit indeed of mentorship. It sure is. Well. Thank you very much for your time, Eleanor. It's been such a delight uh, having a chance to talk to you today on uh, the podcast. Uh, Just want to wish you well for the rest of the week and uh, take care. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Such a pleasure having a conversation with you and getting to know you a little bit through this journey as well. Awesome. Thanks so much.